Well, good morning. It's great to see you all and to be in this place in person. Uh, such as we are, it's truly a blessing and um, a real joy to be here. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians and the third chapter, and in just a minute we'll read verses 7 through 14. Galatians 3, 7 through 14. Since uh, January of 2017, so we're in January 2021 now, I've had the opportunity to preach here at the start of the spring term and give messages related to the most important lessons that I learned during the years when I sat where you sit. My formative years, really as a new believer in college, and then extending that discipleship while working out my own call to ministry and what that might mean vocationally in seminary, I learned many things, foundational things, that really has shaped the trajectory of my life. Four years ago, I talked about the most important doctrine I learned in college and seminary, building from Hebrews 2. I talked about the central and vital role of the doctrine of propitiation and the atonement. Three years ago, I talked about the most important discipline I learned, building from Ephesians 2. I talked about the, the, the power of conquering pride by remembering and reminding and seeing sin once and for all put to death in the Christian life. Two years ago, I talked about the most important discovery I learned, building from 1 Corinthians 10. I talked about how we should, as New Covenant believers, still love and treasure the Old Testament and the value of God's scriptures in the Christian life. And then last year, I talked about the most important diagnosis I learned. Looking at 1 Samuel 16, I aim to show that there is no value in what you believe unless it leads to love. So I'm back again this year by God's grace and the invitation of Dr. Allen to talk to you about today the most important directive I learned while in college and seminary. In an age of confusion, this directive has proved and still proved, still proves to be one of the most freeing and motivating sources of joy and life-giving purpose that I've found in living the Christian life. It's one of the greatest sources of joy and life-giving purpose that I found in living the Christian life, and I hope it will prove to be for you as well if it isn't already. During my years in college and seminary, I learned the importance of this directive to keep the grand end in view for the blessing of the nations. Keeping the grand end in view for the blessing of the nations. And as the Bible guides us, I'm convinced that all Christians should as well. So let me explain first by reading Galatians 3, verse 7 through 14. God's word says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And specifically for our purposes this morning, let me draw your attention 
in this context, back especially to verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, all the nations will be blessed. Four years after having sent William Carey to India, the Baptist Missionary Society, this new organization that was created essentially among churches in England to send missionaries out to the ends of the earth for really the first time at the end of the 18th century uh, on into the 19th century, sent a messenger to check on William Carey, a man by the name of John Fountain. He was sent to aid Carey to provide supplies and also to report back how Carey was doing some four years after Carey departed. And here's part of his report in a letter dated November 1796. Fountain says to the Baptist Missionary Society, to Andrew Fuller and to others, Carey labors in the translation of the scriptures and has nearly finished the New Testament, being somewhere around the middle of Revelation. He keeps the grand end in view which first induced him to leave his country and those Christian friends that he dearly loves. He keeps the grand end in view. William Carey, a modern missionary pioneer who endured much hardship, persevered in faithfulness and worldwide influence until the age of 73, kept the grand end in view. How did he manage faithfulness for that long time, living in another culture, uh, translating the Bible, reaching people who have never heard with the gospel? How did he survive in challenging times when wars were going on around the world in Europe, back home, and other things? How did he keep the grand end in view? Well, that's part of the purpose today. And first, I want to talk a little bit about what is this grand end? While it's right to say that the entire Bible points to and reveals the grand end, I believe that Galatians 3.8 actually sums it up quite well. In this verse, Paul says again, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Here, Paul explains that God has always had the salvation of the nations in mind. Even when he's blessing the nation of Israel, he has a wider end in view. The furtherance of the gospel to the ends of the earth, the the glory of God spread as far as the water covers the sea. From the beginning, he conveyed to Abraham his plan. In what is often called the centerpiece of the first five books of the Bible, God says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12. At the age of 75, Abraham obeyed God, and he and his wife left their country. After a period of travel and time, God met with Abraham, took him outside, and said, look toward heaven and and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Genesis 15 records, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. So after Abraham believed, God made a covenant with him, promising him that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. Not just the father of a nation, but a father of the multitude of nations, Genesis 17.5. So now, Paul, under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit, tells us in Galatians 3.8 that this event, this covenant with Abraham, this taking Abraham outside and telling him to look up at the stars, Abraham believing and accounting him as righteousness, this event was when the gospel was preached to Abraham, Paul says in Galatians 3.8. 
And if you're following with me here, you might be thinking, okay, I, I believe that. Galatians 3.8, so the gospel is preached beforehand to Abraham. How are we to understand that? The name of Jesus Christ is not mentioned. So when he's preaching the gospel beforehand, what is he exactly preaching? Well, in short, the gospel preached to Abraham beforehand was God's promise to him that through Abraham and his offspring, all the nations would be blessed, ultimately through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and don't miss this wider view here, simply that Gentiles, non-Israelites, will be justified by faith. Paul helps us in Romans chapter 4 to explain this, that the purpose, this purpose, this event with Abraham, was to make Abraham the father of all who will believe. And that the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who delivered up our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul also in Romans explains that the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. God from the beginning was telling and shouting and paving a way for the gospel that would come, and he preached it beforehand to Abraham. The great early church preacher John Chrysostom put it this way, talking about in a sermon preached specifically on this verse, Galatians 3.8. Chrysostom says, Paul is showing that the faith, that faith is older than the law. The one who gave the law, he says, in effect, was the one who decreed before the law was given that the Gentiles should be justified. And Paul says, preach the gospel beforehand so that you may understand that even Abraham rejoiced at this kind of righteousness and greatly desired its advent. The gospel has always had the doctrine of justification at its center, justification by faith, reconciliation of sinful humanity to a holy God, and the removal of his just condemnation is the core of gospel truth. Yet to be gospel-centered in our day is to recognize that the gospel was intended for Abraham in the Old Testament past, don't miss this, as a forward-looking, faith-requiring message, revealed ultimately in the miraculous advent perfect law-abiding life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was looking forward to Jesus' coming. We now also are to receive that same message by faith as a backward-looking, faith-requiring message. We are to take that message then to the ends of the earth. The gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham and him. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. God has always intended for that message to come to fruition in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and go from there to the ends of the earth so that all peoples, all tribes, all nations, and all tongues will be surrounded around his throne one day. God has always had the nations in view. As one 20th century poet put it, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. When Abraham looked up in the stars and God said, so shall your offspring breed, God knew at that time who all would be saved. He knew that there would be Gentiles, non-Israelites in Kansas City, Missouri, who would hear the gospel and come to faith. Abraham was seeing, in a sense, by faith, all of those who'd be blessed through him. And not just us, but all the nations of the earth. So more than just us, the directive, the directive that I learned when I sat where you sat, sit now, we must remember is that the gospel has always contained an intrinsic element of blessing the nations. It does not stop at the borders of our experience or the borders of our local church or the borders of our state or our country. God has always desired for the gospel to go forth to be a blessing to the nations. This is the grand end that Kerry kept in view. This is what motivated him through trials and hardships and separation from family at home. 
God desires for all the nations to be blessed. There are some implications of this truth. Because of this, we can say that Muslims and unbelieving Jews are not the true successors of Abraham by genealogy. Listen to Martin Luther talking about this passage. Descent by blood does not create the children of Abraham in God's eyes. Abraham was the father of faith, and he was justified before God, not because he had physical descendants, but because he believed. Therefore, anyone who wants to be a child of Abraham, the believer must also believe. The message of the gospel preached beforehand is that anyone can come into the family of Abraham by faith in Messiah, Jesus Christ. Salvation only comes through one, namely Jesus, in whom faith is placed and through whom we are justified. And the good news is that Christ is stronger than genealogy or genetic connection to an ancient ancestor. And he's stronger than geography. No matter where you're born on this planet, you can come to faith in Christ Jesus. The offer is available to everyone. To everyone. Muslims in northern India, among whom there are hundreds of millions who have not yet heard the name of Christ, can come to faith in Christ if they hear the good news of Jesus. Jews in Israel can come to faith in Christ upon hearing the good news of Jesus. Persecuted and pushed out and and consistently eradicated Uyghurs in China right now can come to faith in Christ if they hear the good news of Jesus. Americans on both coasts and all in between can come to faith in Christ if they hear the good news of Jesus. In our backyard, not even 10 miles from here, Somali refugees who by God's providence and design have been been landed here in America to be given a new life can come to faith in Jesus Christ if they hear the gospel message and hear the good news about Jesus. Your neighbors, the casual person you interact with. As C.S. Lewis reminds us in The Weight of Glory, we never meet a mere mortal. We are all eternal beings. Everyone can come to faith in Jesus Christ from all nations if they would believe. But the impetus, the the pressure, the thing that Carrie felt, the thing that we have to keep in mind is that this open invitation to accept the gospel does not last forever. People die and Jesus will return. One day, Philippians tells us, every knee will bow before him and confess that he is Lord. And at that time, it is too late for people to repent and come to Jesus. So until that day, like Carrie, we're to keep this directive, this grand end, the good news of the gospel for the blessing of all nations in view, and not get distracted or displaced by temporary, serious perhaps, but temporary troubles. We're to keep the grand end in view. When I was in college and seminary, I, in my undergraduate studies, I took a college level class that you could get credit for. I didn't need it as an elective, but you could. That was offered by a local church. It was a class sponsored at that time by the U.S. Center for World Missions called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, class still offered today. It's it's essentially the equivalent of one of our intro to missiology classes. As a new Christian, I think I was a junior in college at the time, uh, that class really for the first time helped me to understand the Bible and open my eyes to the heartbeat of God for the nations and the peoples of the earth. And this directive that the Bible gives for Christian to take the gospel to those who've never heard. I learned for the first time in my early discipleship what it meant to be a world Christian. And, and truly, there's not like world Christians and Great Commission Christians and sort of everyone else. It's actually the directive that's given to all of us to have a heartbeat for the world. 
Tom Steller explains, not every Christian is called to be a missionary, but every follower of Christ is called to be a world Christian. A world Christian is someone who's so gripped by the glory of God and the glory of his global purpose that he chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. So still a new believer at that time with much to learn, I started devouring missionary biographies and talking to friends with similar interests. Um, the world seemed open-ended to me and where God would take me and what he would do, I, I was willing to go and do whatever he thinks. And so I started reading these mission biographies and started simplifying my life to prepare for wherever God may take me to, to participate in this grand inn. As a new believer with great zeal and not a lot of logic or rationale, um, I even went through a season uh, after reading Hudson Taylor's autobiography to start preparing to live in China. Uh, Hudson Taylor started preparing to move to China and while he was still, uh, before he moved, by dressing like the Chinese and preparing to live as he would live there. So I began my logic. I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to get rid of my bed and I'm just going to sleep on a plywood board for a period of time. Because if I go overseas, I never know, I may, that may be how I have to sleep. And all my roommates thought I was crazy. And I even took it a step further. I actually got rid of my bed and created like a wood platform and used a camping thermos mattress for about six weeks. And then when the weather got nice, I moved outside onto our porch. And I thought, can I just live outside and like live off things and, and go through? And that lasted about another six, six weeks. Um, and then I moved on from that. But the zeal and the mentality of, of living this way was how I was prepared my life. One of the things that triggered it was I was engaged with my wife and preparing to be married, and she made it clear that we would not be, li- we would not be sleeping on plywood uh, uh, boards, which I was happy to give that up. But you can see my mentality as a young believer at that time. My wife and I went to seminary, and my love for the local church and missions only grew. I can remember driving through the parking lot and seeing a professor's car that had vanity plates, and his vanity plates said something I didn't understand what it meant. It said, ta ethne, T-A-E-T-H-N-E. And I had no idea what that meant, but I would soon find because I was enrolled in Introduction to Missiology with the missions professor, and it was his license plate. And ta ethne just simply means the nations, the nations. And my missions professor would often relay that our duty as Christians is always to be, all Christians is always to be making preparations to go overseas, but to be willing to stay, rather than preparing to stay, but be willing to go. And that helped flip everything up in my head as I was working through, where is God leading me? What is he doing? It just wanted to have that mentality of being willing to go, uh, willing to stay and preparing to go. So in those years through my local church, I saw my calling refined and really directed toward short-term service and long-term support, supply and mobilization through what became an academic ministry. Uh, This is a short way of telling you a long story of God's gracious plan that led me even here. Uh, for the last seven years at Midwestern Seminary. I feel like I am fulfilling my calling as a world Christian by doing all that I can do here to help mobilize sin and support the work to the ends of the earth until God gives me another assignment. Why am I reviewing all this? My hope is to make one thing clear. The directive to keep the grand end of global evangelism in view is not another garment or tool or lens that the believer wears or uses, puts on for a short-term trip and then takes off. Puts on for a season and then, and then becomes a pastor and never thinks about again. But rather, it is the natural, healthy outworking of what it means to, to, ha- to love the gospel and to have a gospel-centered focus. We should have the grand end in view. It's the natural working out of everything we mean here by being for the church. So to use the remainder of my time 
here, I'd like to spend just a few minutes explaining what I mean by some of these terms I've been using to bring more into focus more clearly this directive that I think we all share. So I'll just have two questions. I'll ask first, what do we need to know when thinking about being a world Christian, understanding this Galatians 3.8 vision, and then what should we do? And then we'll be done. So it's often helpful to define terms. Uh, you, you must define terms. And let me give you an illustration to explain this. So Major League Baseball and the sport of baseball has always been my sport of choice and preference. In my school-age years, I played other sports with friends in their yards or driveways, but competitively, I only pursued baseball. It was a laser-like focus. So as a result, it wasn't until college that I actually learned the rules of how to play basketball. Um, I, I'd never, I didn't play competitively. I knew there were five players, and you run up and down and shoot, but I didn't actually know the rules. And I can remember several weeks my roommates and I were playing basketball, and aside from knowing that you need to run a lot uh, and do something called get open, I was, um, I had no clue what was happening, you know, and um, so my teammates would run up and down, they, they would run the court, they would tell me to set a pick, and I was, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what happens, and so I stumbled and faked my way along until I could learn how to play the game. I was eager to, eager to play hard. I wanted to help my team win. I, I don't like losing. I may appear to be soft-spoken, mild-mannered, and most, you know, my pulse kind of runs about right here. But I don't like losing. That's, that's my, one of my faults. Um, and so I wanted to help them win, but I lacked an understanding of the terms for playing. And even to this day, I still have deficiencies when it comes to basketball. I'm Dr. Allen's tutor. I'm trying to learn uh, different things. And over the winter break, my teenage son and I have been taken to watching the NBA, it's the only thing uh, on, re on a regular basis. It's, it's a good thing to watch and discuss. And even the other night, we had to remind each other what exactly is a triple-double. Um, because in our baseball house, a triple and a double are two different types of extra base hits, not something that amasses some score. So when it comes to considering the work of missions, many of us would be helped to acknowledge that we need a greater understanding of the terms. We need to open up our view. We need to, to admit that we need to understand and think more differently about the implications of the gospel that exist beyond our small little circle. We know the Great Commission. We support and practice evangelism. We even advocate for the need for missionaries. But often the work of missions is like a game we enjoy. We're kind of faking and stumbling our way through, but we really don't know how to play. So I want to put some flesh on the bones here just briefly for some of these terms. These, these terms are elementary and well-known. And so for most of you, it'd just be a reminder and review, but it might help you to even grasp what I'm talking about here. The most important directive that I learned when I sat where you sat started with some of these things. So they're just four. Number one, missionary. John Piper provides a helpful classification when thinking about missionaries. Of two different types, really, that we see in the Bible. He calls them Timothy-type missionaries and Paul-type missionaries. Timothy-type missionaries are following Timothy. He left his home. Uh, he joined a traveling team of missionaries. He crossed cultures, and he ended up overseas, overseeing the younger church in Ephesus, far from his homeland. So he went and participated and then stayed. The Timothy-type missionary, Piper says, stays on the mission field in the same location even after churches are started to aid in their development. You might say this is a, a, after the reaching is done, this is a more teaching type missionary. The Paul type missionary, Piper says, was driven by a passion to make God's name known among people who have never heard, never really staying in one place 
once a church is established. The pursuit of, of traveling to places where there is little or no knowledge of Christ, as Romans 15 illuminates, distinguishes this type of Paul-type missionary. If you would, this is like a reaching-type missionary. So you have teaching missionaries, reaching missionaries. So whether they stay in one place or continue onward to other frontier areas, a missionary simply is one who crosses cultures to share the gospel and carry out the missionary task. Missionary simply is one who crosses cultures to share the gospel and carry out the missionary task. Term number two, to help you on the basketball court of missions. Nations. The Bible records when we talk about being for the nations or, or, or loving the nations or wanting to see God's name proclaimed among the nations. We mean something that the United Nations doesn't necessarily mean or, or some geopolitical entity. The Bible records that nations were first created by God in response to the construction of the Tower of Babel. Previously having one language, the people were dispersed throughout the earth with distinct languages. The nations, both the Jewish nation and all the Gentile nations, continue as central entities in the plan of God to display his glory and work out salvation and judgment. It was to the nation of Israel that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as Messiah to, as Luke 24 says, suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance for, and forgiveness for sins would be proclaimed in his name where? To all the other nations, Luke 24, 47. It is the commission of churches, the Great Commission, to continue taking the task of the message of God's plan of salvation to the nations who have never heard. One nation receives, takes it to other nations. This message will be proclaimed by God's children to the nations until the end of the world, Matthew 24. At that time, the Messiah will return to the earth and all the nations will submit to his rule and reign. People from every nation will worship him, Revelation 7:9. When we understand this biblical definition of nations and the prescribed task of how to reach them, we're encouraged to know what? That the task of reaching all the nations is finishable. It is finishable. For the task is finishable because while, a, while the number of individual people keeps growing and changing, the number of people groups, the number of nations, the ethne, by and large, doesn't. It's a fixed group. Getting the gospel into those people groups can be done. It can be done in your lifetime. It is numerically and mathematically possible. Term number three, remember there are four, reached and unreached. In Romans 15, 19, Paul says, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. In 15, 23, he explains that he is no, longer no longer has any room for work in these regions. And what Paul is essentially saying is this, the further east, the furthest east I've ever traveled has been Jerusalem. The furthest west I've ever been is Illyricum. And everywhere in between, and the, the language of the, of the word choices there is like a circle between the two. In all the places I've been, the ministry has been fulfilled. He's fully preached the gospel of Christ. And of course, the idea here is not that every person in that region, as big as it is, is now a Christian. We know that's not the case. But Paul's saying that all people in this region now have access to the gospel. Their churches started. Those churches are multiplying. Those churches are carrying out the Great Commission. Paul has sown the seeds, churches have sprouted up, and there are preachers there who have continued the work so that everyone in this huge region now has access to the gospel. The gospel's been preached there, the ministry has been filled, it's now self-sustaining. In our language today, we would call this region reached, no longer unreached. So in missions and among missiologists, most people define a people group as reached when there is at least an indigenous or a, a native or natural church able to evangelize the group. It's self-sustaining. It's going to be reproducing. There is an ongoing discussion, which is incredibly fascinating, of which our own Dr. Hathaway is 
really pioneering among missiologists talking about is, well, where do you exactly put the number on how many, how many believers and how many churches does it take before you call a people group reached? And as much as I love to digress into that, I won't go down that route today, other than to say there's debate, and it's a good and healthy debate about what is to right peg that number in terms of a region that's reached. But what's most fruitful and important in thinking about that is that there is an agreement that with people groups who have less than 2% believers are certainly unreached. We may want to say it's even higher than that, that you've got to have more percentage of believers to consider the region reached, but at least that much um, is unreached. So there are parts of the world, frankly, that are reached, and then there are parts that are unreached. So there's an imbalance. People have the gospel. Some people have no access to the gospel. And that should compel us to prioritize our time and energy as we're thinking about this world mission task for all the nations of the earth to glorify God and to hear the gospel. Term number four, last one, the task and the need. When we talk about missions, we're really talking specifically about carrying out the missionary task. Uh, a good friend of mine who serves with the IMB in South Asia, who has been here on campus, uh, I'll call him David, uh, I can remember vividly when I was with him in South Asia, him walking me through and showing that the missionary task is not just something missiologists invent, but can actually be seen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13 and 14, when we see that Paul and Barnabas are sent out for the work to do this reaching work. They go on a missionary journey and they see churches established, and then they see in chapter 14 the work fulfilled. The missionary task is essentially this work of reaching and teaching. These two types of missionaries going, doing evangelism, making disciples for the first time among the people, and then others coming and ensuring that churches are healthily formed, that leaders are developed. And then eventually when that happens, handing the work back over and trusting it to these peoples to continue out the work and moving on and developing churches outward. That is the missionary task. And what's so remarkable about that is that that task is not just reserved for halfway around the world. That's the task of our churches here in the States as well. We're reaching and teaching. We're seeing believers come to faith in Christ. We're discipling them. And then we're starting and forming healthy churches. And we're establishing leadership in that churches. And we're helping those churches replicate. And then we're doing it again. This is the missionary task. And it's to be done by all believers wherever we might live. The need. The IMB, the International Mission Board, divides the world into nine cultural affinity groups and documents, by their calculations, roughly 7,000 unreached people groups or 4.5 billion people. That's the lowest number to think about. It, it could even be higher than that. So of the roughly 7.5 billion people in the world, at least 4.5 would be considered unreached or having no access to the gospel. And this is roughly... Um, in parts of the world that we call the 1040 window that, that crosses a number of these different affinities. So there are many places in need of the gospel. There are many places where people haven't heard. But just as one example, an area I'm more familiar with, which is the affinity of South Asia. This compromises, comprises countries like India, Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh. It's where many of our fusion teams have gone and go and, and will go. Uh, it's where, where many of our uh, missionaries and residents are serving uh, as they've come and gone. In that affinity alone, just to zero it down, there's 1.7 billion people. And of that 1.7 billion people, at least 1.5 billion are unreached. In a recent meeting just a few weeks ago, I had with leaders from South Asia who were here stateside due to COVID. They were helping me understand this to put in perspective. And they said, look, there are many needy places around the world, but if you want to focus on Clearly, the place in the world that has the greatest concentration of lostness on the planet 
you know, they draw a circle around this South Asia region. South Asia is home to more Muslims than North Africa and the Middle East combined. We often think of the Islamic world as in the Middle East, but there are actually more Muslims in South Asia than those places combined, somewhere around 550 million Muslims. There are 300-something million people in the United States, so just you can put that in perspective. There are so many people in South Asia that the missionaries have group, had to group these unreached people groups into larger what they call mega-segments, and then because of the workforce that they have, they're assigning one or two people to each mega-segment. Uh, to try to organize a strategy toward reaching all these people. And to this day, many of those mega segments still have no missionary. So I've seen a map where, uh, you know, there's all these mega segments all over South Asia, and the red mega segments mean there is a missionary, and then there's all these black names, black letters, where there are no missionaries even assigned to them yet. Large pockets of unreached peoples who have no missionary thinking strategically of how to reach them today. Yet, Encouragingly, there are reports of amazing things happening in those regions among Muslims, Muslims coming to faith in Christ, churches starting out of Muslim background, people who now believe in faith in Christ by the hundreds, like people really coming to faith in Christ, things you'll never hear about on the news, these things are happening. So the bottom line is this is actually a great time to go and reach and teach. The need and the task are great. It's a wonderful place to pour your life, whether as a supporter and a sender or an actual goer for a short period of time or a long period of time. There, there are billions of people who have never heard the gospel of Christ, yet when they hear it are coming to faith in Christ now in this one region of South Asia, but that can be multiplied to other affinities. And today, the IMB, due to the health of some reorganization in the, in the previous years actually has more funded positions available today to send people than there are people willing and able to go. So if you're wondering what you're going to do, you're looking for a job. There are jobs fully funded with great benefits to send you to share the gospel with people who've never heard that you don't even have to raise money for. You just have to have a heart and a calling and an ability to go today. So those are the terms. Finally, what should we do? And then I will be done. What should we do? In recent weeks, uh, in addition to watching NBA basketball, our family, surviving COVID and other things like everyone else, finally caught up on all the hype that is The Mandalorian. Um, and if you've seen that show or any Star Wars movie, you know something about making the jump to hyperspace. To travel from solar system to solar system isn't like dusting crops, we're told. You have to have a working hyperdrive, and you have to have the right trajectory locked into the NAVA computer. Otherwise, you could bounce close to a supernova or find yourself floating home. So the key to making the jump to hyperspace in the world of Star Wars is locking in on the right trajectory. The key for Christians to live out God's direction for missions, this grand end, wherever they find themselves in the world, is also trajectory. In what direction we point our plans, our lives will follow. And so do those who we end up leading. Where is your trajectory? How are you thinking about the world and God's great plan? Wherever we are called and wherever we live, whether it's back home in Mississippi, which is a noble calling to pastor churches in that place where there are a number of believers and an immense amount of resources that can be marshaled and mobilized to, to, to send the first missionaries to these people who have never heard. That is a wonderful and noble calling, and I hope many people will pursue it. But we are to do it as world Christians. We keep the grand end in view. We are to champion the end goal of the gospel. 
and called and, and champion those who are called to take to the gospel of the ends of the earth. We're to understand that this isn't another hat that we wear or we put on at different seasons of the year, but this is our outlook and mindset all the time. But it matters your trajectory. We have to be intentional about these things. We have to be increasing and finding ways to increase our knowledge of the nations, to be reading more about other countries in the world rather than keeping up with the latest that's happening in our world necessarily. It's about building a network of missionary friends. It's about hosting missionaries when they return. It's about regularly parading in your church constantly the message of missions and the nations and allowing people to meet missionaries and to be exposed to them and to consider their work and supporting it. A quick test to see where our trajectory lies is just simply to ask ourselves, how often are we thinking about the work of God in other nations of the world? If we're led to stay, which is noble and good, we need people to stay. Our task is to support the ongoing work of Timothy and Paul-type missionaries, not as a side thing, but as a main thing of our churches. Yet for some, and I hope for many from Midwestern in the years ahead, is the need to respond to the call to serve and reach those who have not heard for themselves. In one sense, this calling doesn't require really anything special, a neon sign, a a, a, a Paul on the Damascus Road type experience, you don't need that. Jesus Christ has already said to all of us to make disciples of all nations. And there are logically many nations who have not heard his name. So people must go. People need to be sent. The field is ripe. There are harvesters that need to go. So then it comes down to the asking ourselves the question, what should we do? We should be regularly assessing for ourselves whether God would have us leave our comforts in our home to do the very thing that would surprise and puzzle many people, but yet we know it's what we're supposed to do. And my prayer and my hope is that God will be planting that seed and agitating many of you to be asking that question. What is our role? What is our trajectory in following God's plan and directive for the nations? In conclusion, I, I want to mention one thing will be done. Just over 350 years ago, John Milton first published the greatest work of epic poetry in English. Epic poems all throughout the uh, classical world and other world, but the greatest in English is Paradise Lost. And the point of Milton's long poem is to, he says, justify the ways of God to men. He meant it, meant it to be a work of theology. There are problems with his theology in it, but nevertheless, that was his heart behind it. But essentially, he's presenting the story of the fall of Adam and Eve and the removal from the Garden of Eden. That's Paradise Lost. And yet, in one section near the end of the poem, Milton has the angel Michael reveal to Adam and Eve what will happen in the future after they fall and are kicked out of the garden. He describes for them the incarnation. He describes for them the history of redemption from Abraham all the way through Jesus' commissioning the church to take the gospel to the nations. Milton has the angel Michael give Adam and Eve a view of the grand end. Listen to what he says. Nor after resurrection shall he stay longer on earth than certain times to appear. To his disciples, men who in his life still followed him, to them shall leave in charge to teach all nations what of him they learned. And his salvation, them who shall believe, baptizing in the profulent stream, the sign of washing them from guilt of sin to life, pure and in mind prepared, if so befall for death, like that which the Redeemer died. All nations they shall teach, for from that day, not only the, to the sons of Abraham's loins, salvation shall be preached, but to the sons of Abraham's faith, wherever in the world. So in his seed, all the nations shall be blessed. 
The most important directive I learned when I was sitting where you sat is that a gospel-centered Christian is by default a world Christian. And that changes the trajectory of everything I do in life from that point till today. I hope that if you peel back the layers of my heart and you wonder why I'm in this meeting or writing this report or presenting this paper, in some ways you'll see a dotted line trajectory to the ends of the earth. It's the filter by which I attempt to, to shape everything that I'm doing. The glorious promise of hope and joy here is that the believer who, like William Carey, keeps the grand end in view will therefore, like Abraham, see one day all the nations and peoples blessed to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Dear God, just briefly as we conclude, my prayer is that you would take your word and reorient our lives and minds in the ways that you see fit. And I pray specifically for Midwestern, that is, we are working toward building a strong seminary for your glory, that the natural outworking of that will be healthy churches that are mobilizing peoples to go to the ends of the earth. And I pray that that movement that's already begun would continue and would multiply from here to the ends of the earth, that there are many seated here would be so bothered by the need and you're pushing them that you might redirect their life to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if you confirm that that's not for them, that you would show shake in them that they'll never be able to not think of the world in the same way, that we would all be world Christians for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.